Hey, happy Veterans Day. Yes. How are we doing, vets? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who serves or has served in our armed forces, uh, giving us the freedom to do this, this very thing. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you and we pray for you and we, we hold you high uh, here at Door Creek. Well, my name is Ryan. If you're new here, um, I'm on the teaching team. Uh, during the week, you can find me up at the DeForest campus uh, doing cool stuff there by God's grace. Uh, and uh, so our vision as, as a church is to, um, our vision is to be a Christ-centered church where the power of the gospel is continually transforming lives, renewing our city, and changing our world. We talk a lot about the gospel here, right? Uh, what is the gospel, though? Like, what is it, actually? Uh, it's kind of an important question. Uh, and that's what we're talking about today. In fact, uh, we've been in this series in the book of Romans uh, for a few weeks now, and uh, we've kind of been slogging through some really dark stuff, talking about our depravity as a society, as, as a people, as, as human beings, and how our rejection of God has really sent us in this downward spiral um, of darkness and, and hate and, and murder. And I don't need to convince you of, of that, actually. I mean, doesn't it feel like lately um, that we don't have time to process the last bit of terrible news before the next terrible news is right in front of us? That's the world that we're in. And we've been working through this. And it's honestly, it's been, it's been hard. It's been really hard. Like, I... I try to skip through that, that stuff in the beginning part of Romans, right? At least I find myself tending to do that to get to the good part. But I'm so glad that we've taken the time to work through it. And if you've missed some of that, you can always find those messages online um, or through our podcast. But today, we're at this turning point in Romans chapter 3. We're going to be talking about the gospel, the good news. That's, that's what the gospel means. It's good news. It comes from this Greek word, evangelion. It's good news about what Jesus did. And in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul gave us this little kind of heads up. And he said in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So it's such good news that he was willing to put himself out there and to step out, and he got persecuted, but he said, I am not ashamed of the good news. Why not? He said, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So in this good news is the power and the dynamism to reverse the human tragedy of sin and actually change things. That is what we need right now. We need a change. We need good news. And that's what we're looking at today. So my wife and I, um, we lived in Nevada for about five years. Uh, that's where we just, we moved here to uh, Wisconsin from. And um, so Reno, Nevada. So I think probably for most people who haven't, haven't been to the northern part of Nevada where Reno is, you probably hear Reno and you think maybe casinos and desert. Am I, is that right? kind of what you're thinking. That's kind of what we thought too. Um, 
And then we moved there and we realized this is actually surrounded by mountains. Like there are 12 ski resorts within like 45 minutes of where we live in Reno surrounding this beautiful Lake Tahoe, right? Okay, so we heard that you have to go snowshoeing uh, up on Chickadee Ridge, which is part of this, it's this trail system that goes around the lake way up in the mountains. So like, all right, let's do it. So we, we drive about 30, 40 minutes up into the mountains and we get to the beginning of kind of the trail and we put on our snowshoes and the snow is like over my head and we're, we're like, okay, we need to go up that hill. It's actually a mountain. <laughs> Uh, a thousand feet of elevation change doesn't sound like much until you actually have to walk up a thousand feet over the course of a couple miles in snow above your head, or at least my head. You might be taller than me, but still very deep. And so we're trekking along, and like I'm thinking maybe 20 minutes we're going to be there, and we're going to have a picnic, and it's going to be great. <laughs> no, it's like two hours later, and we are like sweating like, are we sure this is worth it? And the whole journey, we're, we're under trees and we're going through these little ravines and it's, it's kind of like dark and it's like not very fun. But we push through and we come up over the ridge and we see this. Like, wow, right? And that's about all we could say for about 30 or 40 minutes. Like, wow, was this worth it, right? Yes, absolutely. And the first words of our passage in Romans chapter 3, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't know where Romans is, it's in the New Testament, so just split it in half and go slightly to the right. Romans is the sixth book of the Bible, right after uh, Acts, right before 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 21. And the first words of this passage are, but now, but now. Now, there's been this whole history of human darkness and sin, but now there's a change coming. We're coming up over the ridge and we're seeing this incredible beauty laid out before us. So what we're going to do is we're going to read this passage, break it up into three different parts. And there are so many ideas in here. There's so much richness here that goes back all the way through scripture. But what we want to do is just, I just want to highlight three things. First of all, let's talk about righteousness. Then I want to talk about something called the atonement. We'll, we'll look at that uh, later on. Um, and then find out the surprising power of the gospel for all of us, no matter where we come from. Okay, so let's start with righteousness. Well, let's read this passage and we'll talk about righteousness. So it says, but now... Can we just say that together? But now, awesome, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. So when you read law and prophets, what that's talking about is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. That's the Bible that Paul had when he wrote this. The law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. That got him in trouble, by the way. <laughs> For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So a huge idea in here is understanding what righteousness is. Righteousness, gospel, these are kind of like in words, right? Like you have to be in the club 
to use those words. And if, when you use in words like that, you get brownie points when you're in the club, but out there in the world, you don't really use those so much, unless, like, gospel, maybe if you're talking about a style of music, or righteous, maybe if you're like a surfer in California in the 80s. <laughs> but other than that, these aren't, like, terms that we use. So let's talk about righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is a moral standard. It's a moral standard. It's, it's a list of qualifications that humans need to embody in order to be in a relationship with God. It goes back to the fact that people were made in the image of God, which means that what we were created for was to reflect his glorious and good and generous nature back to him and to each other. And it's a cornerstone of our relationship with him, righteousness. And this, this translates into our, our human relationships too. So you can't really have a relationship if you don't, you don't have this kind of right standing posture with each other. And here's what I mean. So let's say you and I agree to get coffee together. And so we agree on the day and the time and the place, and you see me put it in my calendar, which I absolutely need because my brain is not, it doesn't work very well in remembering things, just heads up. So if you set up something with me, I need to like put it in your calendar. Anyway, so you, I put it in my calendar and, um, and we, we go our separate ways and then the pre-agreed upon date and time arrives and you're at the coffee shop and five minutes goes by, no Ryan, 15 minutes goes by, no, Ryan. And so you're in this predicament, right? Do I text him, you know, or not? Have you been there? You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's difficult. Because if you text me, what you're doing is you're pointing out how I have misstepped in our relationship, right? You're, you're pointing that out, and you don't want to feel like a jerk. <laughs> and you don't want me to feel like a jerk, so you're like, this is a problem, right? But finally you do, and you're like, hey, did I get the wrong time? You're very gracious, thank you. You're such a good friend. Did I get the wrong time? And I'm like, and a, and a few minutes go by, and suddenly you get this all caps response, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And like crying emoji or whatever. I don't do the crying emoji. <laughs> and, and I'm like, ah, oh, my dog, you know, or my car or whatever, or you know what? I'm a parent, so, and if you're a parent, you get this, you can always blame your kids. You don't even have to be specific. You just be like, my kids, arms up emoji, like, you know. And, <laughs> uh, I love having kids for so many reasons. And so, okay, you brush it off because you're very gracious. Again, thank you. And then reschedule for next week. So next week comes, and the same thing happens again. Ooh, <laughs> now what? Ryan actually is a jerk, right? <laughs> What's happened to our relationship? Well, I violated something. We're no longer in right standing, right? So there has to be some way that I make this up to you and restore my right standing position with you so we can actually go on and have a good relationship. 
And it's the exact same thing in our relationship with God. Righteousness is this essential facet of our relationship with God, but not just God. Because our righteousness with God means that we also care about the things that he cares about, which is his people, his creation. And let's just pause for a second here. As, as a human species, how are we doing at that? At righteousness? Not so good. And we have our moments, right? We, we see these beautiful things come out, but, but mostly... We've taken God's beautiful and right world and we've vandalized it in so many ways. And that's what sin is like. It's like vandalism. And God hates sin, not because he's stuck up, but because it violates who he is and who he's made us to be. And we can see the effects. Like, you do not have to be a Christian in order for us to agree that things are not going the way they should have been going, right? You don't need to prove that. On Wednesday, we heard about this, another shooting in California. 13 people dead at a bar in Thousand Oaks. There's a group called the Gun Violence Archives, and they've been keeping track since, I don't know, 2012 or so, of mass shootings in the United States. Guess how many we have had so far in 2018? Over 300. Now that changes based on how you measure it and what counts as a mass shooting, but does it matter? I mean, this, this is dark, this is dark. And you, so you, you may say, well, I've never murdered anyone. And I've had conversations with confessed atheists that say, well, I've never murdered anyone. I'm in good shape, I'm okay. But what Jesus does is he shows us that sin And unrighteousness is actually far more pervasive than just what we read in the headlines. That actually, we violate God's righteousness in secret and internal ways that are mostly invisible to other people. The law says don't murder. Well, what did Jesus say in in the Sermon on the Mount? He showed us that when we harbor anger or bitterness or rage against another person, we're actually playing in that same dark internal space as a person who unloads their gun. The law says don't commit adultery. I'm talking about the Ten Commandments here. Don't commit adultery. Well, I'm good, I haven't done that. But, but Jesus says, no, no, not so fast. Because when you secretly objectify someone through a screen or just through your imagination and you're using them in your mind for your own pleasure, Jesus says that what you're doing is you're actually inviting the same devastation of adultery into the world through your lust. You get that, like it's pervasive. And all through Romans chapters one and two, Paul's been making this case that we've fallen out of right standing with God, fallen out of righteousness with God, and we've fallen into God's wrath. And his wrath isn't like our wrath. Mark was talking about this just a few weeks ago. Because our wrath is unpredictable, right? And it's, it's reactive. Like, you, like, how is he doing today? I'm not sure. His... But God's wrath isn't like that because his wrath flows out of his commitment to righteousness and to love and out of his vision for the world as it should be. And often we pit God's love and God's wrath against each other 
But we can't do that because his wrath flows out of his love. The opposite of God's love isn't his wrath. The opposite of God's love would be his indifference. And I thank God that God is relentlessly committed to dealing with evil and injustice. And that's a promise that we can hang on to. He's going to deal with this. But it means we have a problem, right? Because we have violated God's righteousness. And what Paul is saying here, it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, Christian, non-Christian, you have a, a moral code that you hang on to really tightly, we are still in violation. And we have to be justified by someone else because our justification is not going to cut it. And so this idea of God's righteousness being revealed through this person of Jesus Christ stepping into our world is not a new idea. It comes from the Old Testament. I'm just going to read one passage here. It's not going to be on your screen. This is an ad this morning. So Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Check this out. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Doesn't that sound like what we need? In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safely. This is the name by which he will be called. Get this, the Lord, our righteous savior. What is this prophecy? It's, it's a message of hope. Like, I know it's dark now, but someone is coming, a ruler, a Messiah, who's gonna restore the human problem. He's gonna reverse the curse. And he's gonna, he's gonna give us a world the way it was meant to be. And, and what this Messiah was gonna do is he was gonna reverse the polarity of our consciences. He's gonna turn our hate into love. He's gonna turn our, our lust into honor. He's gonna turn our racism into just a celebration of the unique ways that God has put us all together. He's gonna do all of that. He was gonna take Vikings fans and Packers fans, and no, that's too far, <laughs> too far. That's not in the Bible. Guys, God has, has a vision for a world at peace, a world restored. That's what this is about. It's good news. It feels like a sunrise after a dark night. Have you ever been sick for a long time and suddenly you wake up and you're like, wow, I feel better. It's good news. It feels like Christmas morning. It feels like snow. Did you guys get that feeling when you, saw, you woke up and saw snow? I was like seven years old. Like, there's snow on the ground. This is amazing. It's good news. What? You guys weren't like that? <laughs> Let's look at verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And we're going to unpack that concept. Through the shedding of his blood. To be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. 
because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Okay, so the atonement and the shedding of blood is another pretty important concept in this passage, and I think it's probably pretty removed from most of our daily experience because we don't do animal sacrifices, I think, right? Unless you're talking about barbecue in your backyard. But this is very different. So this is referring to the ancient Jewish tradition of the sacrificial system. You can read about this in the Old Testament. And specifically, what we're going to look at is um, a Jewish holiday called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And this comes from Leviticus 16. And the whole idea here is that human sin and unrighteousness, that it, it results in death. It results in death and pain, and all sorts of injustice. And so what that does is it sets God and the people that he loves so much at enmity with each other. And God's relentless pursuit of righteousness means that he needs to purge his creation of evil. That's what it means for him to be righteous. Unfortunately, that means getting rid of us. But God doesn't want to do that. So in Genesis 12, God picks out this kind of random person who hadn't done anything to deserve God's favor. And he said, I want you, Abraham, and your family to model my righteousness. I'm going to, you can't give it to me. I'm going to put it on you. And I'm going to give you this thing called the law. And it's going to teach you all about me and all about my ways and all about how to be a conduit for righteousness and blessing for the whole earth. And in that law was this list of symbolic rituals, these animal sacrifices. Now, for us, that kind of makes us go, that is weird, right? Animal sacrifices. But for Israel at the time, this wasn't weird because all their Canaanite neighbors were practicing this. But it was very different because for the Canaanite neighbors, what they were doing is they were killing animals and sacrificing them to their gods in order to appease them and satisfy their bloodlust, Right? And it was supposed to entreat favor and give them the things that they wanted from these gods. That's not the way the God of Israel set this up. So he used the familiar practice of animal sacrifice, but, but changed it and tweaked it. So that it, what it was, it was a symbolic way of dealing with the devastation and the guilt that their sin created. So they would take a lamb once a year on the Day of Atonement and put it on the altar They would cut its throat and they would see the blood roll down the altar, this innocent animal, and as they watched his lifeblood run down, they got a sense of the the pain and the devastation and death that their sin created. It's a really visceral kind of experience, isn't it? And so it was this reminder of the consequences of sin, but it wasn't just that. It also served as this symbol of substitution, and what God was doing is he was giving them a picture of this one who would come later as a substitute. So God has the responsibility, right, to maintain his righteousness by getting rid of evil in the world, but instead of killing the people he loved, he allowed this innocent animal's life to serve as a ransom payment on their behalf. Leviticus 17, verse 11 says this, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. 
It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Atonement. Atonement. It's actually three words in the English. At one mint. At one mint. Atonement. It's the idea that, that this sacrifice would cover over human sin and actually reconcile and bring together the relationship that was fractured because of sin. Isn't that beautiful? And it comes from this word, hilasterion, in the Greek. That's the word that we have for atonement in this passage. And hilasterion literally means mercy seat. And so the mercy seat was this thing on the Ark of the Covenant. It was like the cover, and it would sit in the most holy place in the tabernacle. Um, and, and on the Day of Atonement, the priest would dip something in the blood of the sacrificed lamb and once a year go into this most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence on earth. Now that's like God's presence was literally there. It was the most holy physical place on the planet, which by the way is now us. <laughs> like that's a big thing. We're not gonna get into that. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat as a symbolic way of dealing with the sin of the people and and maintaining their righteousness before God. But this ritual, as powerful as it was, never actually dealt with the problem of human sin. But what it did is it pointed to the way that God would once and for all deal with this problem through Jesus Christ. And that's good news. So this may seem strange to us in our modern context, but I tell you, the early Christians, the ones who were reading this letter from Paul, they were totally tracking with this. Oh, I get it. Jesus is the sacrificed lamb. This is a really, really big deal. What does it mean? What does it mean that he's a sacrifice for the atonement? Well, what it means, get this, it means that he would rather die than live without us. He would rather die than live without us. Not because we're amazing, because he loves us. And that's just who he is. And this is the gospel. I mean, that's it. That's it. Like, he loves us so much he would die for us. That's what he's done for us in Christ. And the heart of the gospel is that God has moved toward us to bring us back to himself. And the rest of our time in Romans, or a lot of it, is gonna be just trekking around the Tahoe Rim, observing the beauty and the implications of this message on every area of life. It's gonna roll back the curse. It's gonna undo Romans chapter one and two. It's gonna give us new life, a new hope for a new society. It's even gonna reverse the curse of death itself. It all starts right here. Aren't I lucky that I get to preach this passage? <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Let's move on uh, to the last verse, verse 26. He did it, all of this, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, and pay attention to this next line, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Why did God do all this? because he wanted to be just, he wanted to be righteous. By the way, justice and righteousness in this passage are the exact same word. 
that just took, take on different forms. He wanted to be just and the one who justifies. Now this is really, really powerful. What does it mean? Well, it's kind of, it kind of starts with a terrifying thought that God is the one who's just. What this means is that God is 100% real and one day we are all gonna stand before him with our lives opened up in front of him like a book and we're gonna be evaluated according to his just and right standard. It's a scary thought. But, remember the first words of our passage, but now. We don't just have a, a righteous judge. We also have one who justifies us. He righteousizes us. You're welcome <laughs> for that word. So, when we're evaluated before the righteous and just judge, he doesn't see us who have put our faith in Jesus. He doesn't see our unrighteousness. What he sees is the innocence and the purity and the righteousness and the generosity and the justice and the goodness of himself. He rewrites our story. He covers it over. That's good news. And we realize in that moment, when we put our trust in this God who is the just justifier, that what God did is he treats Jesus the way we deserved so that we could be treated the way he deserves. You see that? And this space between God's relentless justice and his unstoppable mercy, that's where the power of the gospel resides. And so some of us, we need to turn away, we need to respond to this by turning away from our injustice and our unholiness, and we need to just cling to God's forgiveness and his grace. But here's the thing about this passage. This passage, this book, Romans, wasn't written to a bunch of sinners that, that needed a new moral standard. It wasn't. Like, that does need to happen. If you haven't repented of your sin, which just means turn away from your sin and cling to what Jesus has done on our behalf, I would love for you to do that before you leave here today. I'm guessing that there are a lot of us here who have already done that. And just like Paul's audience. And so there's this surprise in what he's saying here. This passage was written to Christians who were steeped in Jewish tradition. They understood the atonement. They already knew that they needed to repent of their sin, but they still were not moved and experiencing the power of the gospel. Like even the Pharisees, they understood the gravity of their sin and they knew how to say sorry for their sin. They didn't need to come to terms with the fact that God is just. What they needed to come to terms with was the fact that he alone is the one who justifies. So, I heard one preacher explain this this way, and I think it's helpful, so I'm gonna to try to do it here. He said um, that every one of us is hardwired and instinctively creates what he calls um, a validating performance record. Validating performance record, and here's what I mean. So um, you're, you are applying for a job, okay? And so what do you need to bring to your interview? Resume, yes, and pants. Don't forget pants. And a shirt, maybe, I, okay, yeah, not helpful right now. But you bring a resume, right? This is your, 
This is proof. It, it actually lists out all the ways that you have uh, fulfilled their expectations for this job, and it justifies your applying for the position, right? Or you're, you're applying for um, higher education. What do you need to bring there? Your, your transcript. It shows that you have checked all their boxes and you deserve, you're justified in trying to get into this program. And so what this preacher was saying, and I think what Paul is saying here is that we all have that. We all are constantly building our own validating performance records in our lives. And we're endlessly creative in how we do this. We, we validify and, and justify ourselves through our hard work, through maybe the way we parent, through our goodness, through volunteerism, through our giving and our generosity. Lots and lots of good ways that we do that. But what Paul is saying here is that's not enough because that's not God's righteousness. That's our righteousness. And how, how do you know, like, if that is what you're doing? Well, you know in, in a couple ways. Number one, when you fail. If when you fail to adhere to your own self-professed standard, if when you fail, your, your self-talk is, oh, I just need to try harder. Oh, I just, oh, I can't believe I messed up again. I just need to, I just need to add a few more rules, increase my self-discipline, whatever, read another book, get this right. I just need to try harder. If that's you, if that's your self-talk, then what you're doing is you're relying on your own righteousness and not God's righteousness. Another way to know is when you see other people fail. Are you free like, to point out and judge other people? Like, oh man, if, if they just parented the way I do, they never would have had that problem. They just voted the way I do. We'd be in a much better place as a society. They just drove the way I do. Like, the fact that we're not like those other people is what justifies us before God. All that does is it makes it self-conscious and judge, not self-conscious, self-confident and judgmental. And Paul's message here is that Everyone, Jew, Gentile, Christian, non-Christian, that we're all building some kind of value structure, some kind of righteousness that we believe justifies our existence before God and before others. So this is like getting caught up in being a good person. Like all I need is a meaningful career. That's gonna justify my existence and make my life worthwhile. Being a good parent, it's my athletic ability. It's my hard work, it's my looks, it's my money, it's my house, my reputation, it's how long I've been sober. It's pastors who find their value and the worth in the size of their churches. And all we're doing is we're manufacturing false justifications. And here's the thing, when you succeed at that, the very best that's gonna happen is we're gonna become proud and arrogant and judgmental. But when we fail, we're gonna become depressed and devastated. False justification enslaves us because we're never gonna be able to live up to it. But Jesus' justification, the righteousness of God that we've just read about, it frees us because Jesus has already lived up to God's standard on our behalf. 
It's so freeing, you guys. It, it takes off all the anxiety. And every other religion, every other religion without exception, righteousness is something that people create and they bring it to their God. Like, look, this is what I've done that validates my existence before you. This justifies me. But Christianity, in Christianity, God never asks us to create our own righteousness and present it to him. He creates his righteousness and puts it on us. And his righteousness is perfect and it ends our search for justification forever. So a Christian isn't just someone who's repented of their sin. It's also someone who's repented of their own righteousness. How do we do this? We do this by putting our faith in Jesus. Ooh, what does that mean? Well, last week I was throwing my, uh, my son's football around with him that he just bought uh, with his own money. And he's like, Dad, how high can you kick it? And there's not very high. I'm not very athletic. But something rose up in me. It's like, watch this. So I kicked it as high as I could, and it landed right in a tree. So we have this big, beautiful sugar maple in our backyard, and there's like 25 feet up, there's this perfect little football cradle. <laughs> I wish the Vikings could catch the football as well as this tree. I'm a Vikings fan, sorry if that offends anyone. Yeah, I got that. And the ball lands in there, and August just is devastated. He's crying. I'm like, all right. So I get out like the, the ladder, it's like the transformer ladder, you know, you like unfold it and extend it, it's one of those things. And I stretch it up, extend it as far as it'll go and it's way up there. I'm like, okay, I have this moment and parents, you get this. It's like, do I wanna risk my life to get this stupid football down or do I just buy him a new one? <laughs> but he's crying and I wanna be his hero. So I'm like, all right, I'm gonna do this. So I climb up the ladder and I get to the top and this thought crosses my mind, like, oh my gosh, my wife isn't here. And August doesn't know how to call 911 yet. And I like pray to the ladder. I don't recommend this. I was like, ladder, my life is in your hands right now. Please don't fail me. And I get the ball and I come back down. I think that's, that's a good picture of what faith is like. I mean, I understood as that ladder was leaning against the tree before I climbed up, I understood that it was structurally sound. It was probably going to hold me up. But I didn't have faith in it until I actually climbed it. And putting my faith in Jesus, it can be scary like that. Because it means that I let go of all of the false ways that I'm trying to justify myself. It means I'm, I'm, I decide to stop measuring myself by what others think of me. The only validation that I take is, is what Jesus did for me on the cross. And responding in faith means we, we wholeheartedly throw ourselves on his mercy and, and we relish in the freedom that he gives us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this word. Thanks that after all of our darkness, and our unrighteousness, and our failure, and our judgmentalism, um, 
and the stress and the tyranny of, of our own righteousness that you say, just rest. I've done all the hard work for you. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us into freedom, not just from our sin, Lord, but also from our own righteousness. And God, I pray that every, everyone here who needs to respond to your word would do that before they leave today. Save us, Lord. We need you. And we love you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.